I'm Pastor Richard Gamble, and the following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Bastrop, Louisiana. To find out more about First Baptist Bastrop, go to www.firstbastrop.org. That's www.firstbastrop.org. Well, let's, let's start this morning by going to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is not moved And so, Lord, we can stand and trust in you, Lord. When the world is against us, we can stand and trust in you because you are almighty, sovereign God. You are above all things. So, Lord, we thank you and praise you because of who you are. Lord, today as we think about revival, Lord, we're just reminded of Psalm 85. Four through seven, restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. O Lord, that's our prayer, that you would revive us again or for so many of us we just feel spiritually spiritually depressed and lord we look we, we we need that new sense of life in you lord we need revival and so lord we pray knowing that it is revival comes as part of your sovereignty and the work of your sovereign hand, Lord, we pray for revival. We pray that you would restore the joy of our salvation. Revive us again, O Lord. As we look to your word today, Lord, that's our greatest desire, is that you would stir our hearts and bring revival. So, Lord, come today, I pray. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can turn to page 376 in the Pew Bible. Page 376 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a, if you don't own a Bible, then we invite you to take the pew bible with you we want everybody to have a copy of god's word use it and it will certainly bless your life so nehemiah chapter 9 we are now one week from our time of revival with luke hock and joss coming next monday to be with us and as we look toward that week of course, we, we want revival. We're calling it a revival, but it's not really, we, we can't manufacture revival. Revival is something that God does, but that's our prayer, that God would revive us to bring revival to our church and uh, regeneration to the lost, right? We want people to get saved as well. So that is our hope and our prayer. And so I've been wanting to spend some time thinking about revival uh, from a biblical st- standpoint. And so last week, we we looked at, first of all, the elements of revival, and we saw the elements of revival in Second Chronicles 
7.14. And we saw those as humility, confession, and repentance. God said, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, and that prayer is a prayer of confession. If they'll turn from their evil ways and seek my face, then I will heal their lands. I will revive them. And so there we saw the elements of revival. What God tells us as we seek revival, we're to humble ourselves, we're to confess our sins, and we are to repent. Now the question that arises from that then, what, what are the evidences of revival? What's the evidence of revival? What are the results of revival? How, how do we know that revival occurs And so that's what we want to discover today in our text and here in Nehemiah chapter 9. And and I've got the whole chapter here, but uh, we're we're going to kind of just glance over some of it and and then focus in on other parts of it. But in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see the evidence of revival coming out. And so just kind of to remind you where we've been thus far, of course, we, we talked about that last week, 2 Chronicles Chapter 6, verse 36 through 40, we see Solomon as he is, he is uh, dedicating the temple. He, he prays to the Lord, and, and he had that one spot in there in his prayer where he says, uh, you know, uh, if your people sin, because no, there's no one who does not sin, right? Everybody sins. And so he anticipates that the people of Israel would sin, and so uh, he prays, Lord, when they sin, But when they repent, when they turn back and when they pray, then forgive them. And God again came back and says, When my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, turn from their evil ways, and seek my face, I will certainly revive them and heal their lands. And so that's kind of the whole context and and chronicles. And then we see, what we, we see in the history of the Israelites is that happened. It, it all happened. It all took place. In fact, it all started with Solomon. As young Solomon prayed this prayer, the elder Solomon fell into sin. In fact, he fell into great sin. And uh, you don't have to turn there, but if, if you want to, you, you can. You can flip over to 1 Kings chapter 11 1 Kings chapter 11, the first eight eight verses there, we see Solomon, although as a young man he was pursuing God just like David his father did, but yeah, he let sin come into his life. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for because surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after 
Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemesh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. And so there we see Solomon leading the people of Israel into sin. He had this wonderful mountaintop moment when he dedicated the temple and the glory of the Lord came into the temple and, and filled the temple and there was a hallelujah moment. But like so many of us, he lost sight of the hallelujah moment. And he began to pursue the things of this world. He let these foreigners, these foreign women, these foreign wives come into his life. And instead of them following the ways of the Lord, they drew Solomon's heart away to follow the ways of the world. The ways of idolatry. And Solomon, of course, being the king, led all of Israel into his idolatry. And from that point on in Israel's history, we see this whole, whole movement back and forth, back and forth, up and down, up and down. You, you have kings who, who draw the people away into idolatry, and then you'll have a king who comes in, and, and he's a good king, and, and he brings revival into Israel. And then there's another king who draws the people back into idolatry. And this is back and forth, back and forth. As you go through the books of, of, of the kings, you, you see this up and down. These high mountaintop moments of, of revival followed by deep valleys of sin. All the way until you get to the point where God says, enough enough I'm going to do what I told Solomon I would do when my people sin against me the land's going to vomit them out and I'm going to send them into exile and that's what happened the people of Israel went into exile. They went into exile there in Babylon. Well, the, the northern king, of course, went into exile in Assyria first. But then the Jerusalem, Judea, uh, all of that area, they, they come later and they go into exile when uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes over Jerusalem and sends all of the Judeans into exile into Babylon. And so we come to, through the exile... 70 years or so of exile. And then God, the people there in, in exile, some of them, at least a remnant of them, begin to pray. They, they do what Solomon said. They begin to pray to the Lord their God. They humble themselves and they pray and they begin to repent of their sin. And, and God honors his promise and he brings a remnant back into Israel. And so we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, and a remnant has come back into Israel. And, and there they're beginning to, to rebuild Jerusalem at least a little bit. And so the first part of, uh, in Ezra, we see the, the rebuilding of 
of the, the temple there by Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the priest, Zerubbabel being the descendant of King David and Jeshua being a descendant of, of Aaron. And so you have this king figure and this priest figure coming back and they rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. And then following them, then comes Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, he sees the city in distress because there are no walls. And so Nehemiah comes in and he rebuilds the walls. And, and so there was this sense of revival taking place in Jerusalem as the remnant has returned, right? Because God is fulfilling his promise. They, they've repented. They humbled themselves in the land of exile. And, and, and they repented of their sins. They confessed their sins. And so God brought a, a remnant back. And they've had some mountaintop moments, but then all, all of a sudden, right? Not really all of a sudden. They have this high mountaintop moment, but then life comes in. And they start getting distracted. They start taking their eyes off of God, and they allow sin to start creeping into their life. They begin to make compromises, because that's what we do, Right? We begin to make compromises in the people of Israel. They begin to make compromises and, and they take their eyes off the Lord and they start following the ways of the world and they start living in sin. And so God in his grace sends a preacher. God sends a preacher. He sends Ezra. Ezra is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I love Ezra. Because he is a great preacher. Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, says Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. Scripture says the, the hand of, of God was on Ezra because he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel, Ezra 7.10. And so God sends the preacher, Ezra, to come and proclaim the word of the Lord. And so Ezra shows up in Jerusalem. He comes with the word of the Lord and he comes to preach. And as Ezra stands before the people of God and he begins to proclaim the word of God, revival breaks out. Revival breaks out. And that's what we see here in Ezra chapter 9. I mean, excuse me, in Nehemiah chapter 9. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we see revival taking place. Now in 8, they, they gather together for a worship service. And revival really begins to start happening there. And, and the people say, wait a minute, it's not the time for mourning yet. We're, we're in a time of worship. And so they say, uh, let's, let's, let's focus on feast right now because it's a time of worship. It's a time for feasting. And so they feast. And they go through this feast. And then in chapter 9, they come back because now it's time to address the sin problem. And in chapter 9, we see revival taking place. And notice here, we see right off the bat, we see the elements of revival in Nehemiah chapter 9 in the first part there. Pick up with me there. Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth 
and with earth on their heads. In other words, they, we see that first element of revival right there. It is humility. They are humbling themselves before the Lord. They gather in fasting. Now fasting, if you look at fasting in Scripture, there's, there's two, two things that uh, fasting is used for, right? There's, sometimes fasting is an act of devotion. And so we, we might declare a fast. And, and it doesn't have to be a fasting from food. It can be a fasting from anything. And I've talked about this before. You, you can fast from food, or you can fast from TV, or you can fast from social media, or you can fast from a number of things. But when you fast as an act of devotion, you're fasting. You're, you're not doing something that you normally do so that you can spend more time with the Lord. And so instead of having lunch, you might fast and spend that time in prayer and Bible study instead. And so fasting can be used as an act of devotion to spend more time with the Lord, but it's also used as an act of mourning, a sign of mourning. Have you ever been so sorry in such a state of mourning that you just didn't feel like eating? I mean, all of us have been there, right? Where, where we've just been at such sorrow that food did not appeal to us whatsoever. And that's what it is here. They are mourning their sin. They don't want to feast. They don't want to eat because they are in such sorrow over their sin. So they come together before the Lord in fasting and in sackcloth. Now sackcloth is a rough garment made of goat hair. And it symbolized sorrow and submission. It symbolized sorrow and submission. So go back to Jonah. When Jonah goes to the people of Nineveh and he declares the word of the Lord, the people of Nineveh there declare a fast. The king of Nineveh declares a fast and, and he puts on sackcloth because he is in mourning over their sin or the, the sin of the the of the people there the people of Nineveh and so sackcloth is a is an ugly kind of gar, a garment it's kind of like a burlap sack right you you put on this ugly itchy uncomfortable garment to symbolize sorrow before the lord and then again they put dirt on their head again another act of of sorrow and mourning before the Lord. They're coming before the Lord in absolute humility. They are saying to the Lord, yes, Lord, we have sinned. We hate our sin. We are sorry for our sin. We are lower than dirt because of our sin. They are humbling themselves before the Lord. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite, the one who feels sorrow for their sin and humbles themselves before the Lord. The Lord says, I revive them. 
So the people of Israel come to before the Lord in humility. But also we see here repentance. We see repentance. They come in fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their head. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. They separated themselves from all foreigners. This, my friend, is an act of repentance. When they are separating themselves from the foreigners, this is an act of repentance. Now, we have to understand in the Old Testament, when you you look at the Old Testament, when when Scripture talks about those who are non-Jews, right? Non-ethnic Jews, people who are ethnically not Jewish, Uh, It it refers to non-ethnic people, non-Jewish people, in in two ways in Scripture. First, there are sojourners. There are sojourners. Now, that word sojourner has a kind of a, uh, there's this kind of idea of coming alongside, right? There's this camaraderie involved there. A sojourner Uh, is even declared in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 19 tells us to love the sojourner to care for the sojourner and a sojourner is someone who is not a Jewish not ethnically Jewish but it is someone who kind of comes in and, and they see the Jewish people and they admire the Jewish people and they say uh, they recognize the God of the Jews as the God, right? They, they adopt the Jewish ways. They adopt uh, Yahwehism, if you will, and, and they become followers of Yahweh. That's a sojourner, right? They, they're coming in, and, and they're not trying to, to draw pe- the Israelites away from God. No, they want to draw near to God, and so they want to be with the Jews, and that's what we see indicated as sojourners in the Old Testament. One great example of this, of course, is Ruth. Ruth, you remember, she was not Jew, not by birth. She was a Moabite woman. And she married a Jewish man, but then before they had children, her husband died. And so there, Naomi was in a foreign land, and she says, it's time for me to go back to Israel. And so she, she sends her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth being one of them, and she says, why don't y'all go back to your people? Go back to the Moabite people. There's no reason for you to come with me to Israel. And what did Ruth say? Ruth says, where do I go? I'm going to go with you. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. See, now she's a sojourner. She's a sojourner. She adopts Yahwehism. She wants to pursue the God of the Bible. She wants to pursue the creator and sustainer God, the God of Israel. She is a sojourner in the land of Israel. And God's word says we're to love the sojourner. Love the sojourner. Care for the sojourner. And, of course, God honored Ruth's decision by making her a part of the Messianic line. So there's the sojourner, but then there are foreigners there are the foreigners and we read that earlier when it said that solomon loved many foreign women and those foreign women brought their foreign gods into the land of israel and pulled solomon away from his devotion to god and brought it to those foreign gods and so there's the foreigners, the ones who don't adopt Yahwehism, 
No, they want to bring in paganism. They want to draw the people of Israel away from God. And that's what we see taking place here in, in Nehemiah. The people of Israel, they, they, they started making compromises. They came back revived, but now, they're be, now that they're in the land, they begin to compromise. And they begin to allow these foreigners in, and the foreigners are drawing their hearts away from their devotion to God. And so we see here in Nehemiah chapter 9, as they separate themselves from the foreigners, this is an act of repentance. They are separating themselves from those things that would draw their devotion away from God. I wonder, how many foreigners have you allowed in your life? Might you have people in your life who are drawing you away from your devotion to the Lord? Or maybe it's not even people. Maybe it's just things. Are there things in your life that are drawing your devotion away from the Lord? Maybe social media is cutting into your time with the Lord every morning. Instead of time, spending time in, in Bible study and prayer, hey, you're doing the social media flip, the Facebook flip. You know, a lot of people tell me, you know, I would love to study God's Word. I would love to spend time in prayer, but I just don't have time. Oh, but they got time to sit there on that phone. And flip. How many hours a day do you spend flipping away on useless things like this when you could be spending it with the Lord? Perhaps there's some foreign things in your life that you need to repent of even today. So there's humility, there's repentance, but then there's also confession. They separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up and a quarter of the day for, uh, and they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Let me just read that again. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Wow. And then they confessed. They made, and then for another quarter of it, they made confession. They confessed their sins. They confessed unto the Lord. They poured her heart out in confession. And as you, you go on down through the book of Nehemiah there, you begin to see uh, what confession actually looks like. And it may not be what you thought confession was. Look, look at confession. Going on down to verse 6 there, we see this whole idea of confession coming out in the rest of the book. And here's where I'm going to skip around a little bit because we don't have time to read all of it. 
But notice what, what we see as, as they confess their sins before the Lord. First, they, in their act of confession, they give adoration to God. They give adoration of, for God for multiple things, for many of his attributes. First, they, they adore God. They praise God as creator and sustainer. Look at verse 6. You are the Lord. You alone, you have made heaven, the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of the heavens worships you. Praise you, Lord, as our creator and sustainer. Then they praise him as the faithful covenantal, covenanter. Verse 7, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made, him, made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And then they praised him as Redeemer, verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the, at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. He is God the Redeemer. They praise God. And see, that's where confession starts. It begins first recognizing who God is. Just like prayer should be, uh, as we start our prayers, we should start our prayers in adoration to the Lord, praising God for who He is. And that's where confession starts. We've got to recognize who God is. Who is this God whom we have offended? That's where we start our confession. And then as they go on, they begin to confess their sin. And they begin by confessing corporate sin. Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, talking about their forefathers. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies. You, you know, first of all, they, they began to look at past sin. They began to look at the sins of their forefathers. And they began to confess their sins. And you know what? I wonder sometimes if we might need to start there. Can we look back at the history of the church and see some things that have happened that, that we need to confess before the Lord? Perhaps we need to, to, to confess the complacency of the church in the past. The sin of the church of not being outward focused and, and going out and evangelizing and, and bringing in the nations. Instead of just focusing on those who look like us and act like us, why haven't we been going out to evangelize those who are different? Whether ethnically or economically. Perhaps we need to start there and confess before God 
our own sin and not fulfilling the Great Commission. Not taking the gospel to every people group in our town. They confess the sins of the past, but I also confess their own sins here and now. Looking down to verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the, the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time the, the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for because you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave to them even in their own kingdoms and amid your, your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you and turn from their wicked ways. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. Because of our sins, they rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. It's because of our sins. It's not just their sins in the past. We've continued on in sin, Lord. Here's my sin, Lord. Here's my offense. They lay it all out before the Lord in confession. I wonder what we need to confess today. I wonder what you might need to confess today. What do you need to lay before the Lord so that the Lord might revive you? If you want revival, Friend, you must humble yourself before the Lord. Mourn over your own sin. Turn away from that sin and confess it before the Lord. Give it to the Lord. And God says, I will revive you. And that's exactly what takes place here in Nehemiah. The people of the Lord, the people of Israel, as they hear the Word of God preached, they were so convicted by their sins. They humbled themselves before the Lord. They confessed their sins before the Lord. They turned away from their sin and turned to the Lord and revival broke out. And here in verse 3, we see the first evidence of revival taking place. Look back at verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of the, of the day they made confession and worship the Lord their God. You see it? The first evidence of revival is worship. It is worship. 
You see, we need revive. We need to feel the joy of our salvation. And when God revives us, oh, we worship. We rejoice before the Lord. And if you go on down into verse 5 there, you, you see the, the Levites, the other preachers at hand, as they stand up on the stairs, and they say to the people, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. They worship the Lord. They praise God as God comes in and revives their spirit. They worship before the Lord. They praise Him. They give glory to His name. And that's what takes place when people's heart gets right with God. When they have that joy of their salvation renewed, they can't help but burst out and worship to praise God. Oh, we don't hold back at Calvary, at Calvary, right? You worship, you praise God with joy, great joy, when your heart is revived before God. Oh, we praise God for the restoration of our, the joy of our salvation. Of course, we see this again going back to David's confession. David's confession in Psalm chapter 51, again, confessing his sin before the Lord, searching for his own revival. Psalm 51, verse 7, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Oh, restore the joy of my salvation, Lord. And notice what he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God, uh, David says, oh Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation and I'll sing praises to your name. Oh, when we receive revival in our hearts and our souls, we worship. We worship. Oh, I want to see us worship like that. To see revival break out and us give God glory and praise. But there's another evidence of revival as well. And we see it here in this psalm. We don't see it so much over there in uh, Nehemiah, but we do see it here in David's psalm. Notice what he says there in verse 13. Psalm 51, 13, Then restore unto me the joy of your salvation, uphold, my, with a, hold, uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. The second evidence of revival is witness. It is witness. 
We begin with worship, praising God, but we can't hold back right there, right? We go out and we tell others. We become a witness of what God is doing in our hearts. We can't hold back. We got to go out. We got to tell people about the joy of our salvation in Jesus Christ. You know, that's the, the thing. We talk about those things that we love most, don't we? It's just true. We talk about those things which we love most. Newlyweds can't quit talking about one another. You grandparents, you can't stop talking about your grandkids. Right? You got their pictures there on your phone and, and you're ready to flip through. Yeah, see them? Yeah, yeah, yeah this one graduated. Uh, uh, this one took its first walk. Right? We, we talk about most what we love the most. If you're a sports fan, it's sports. Right? Did you hear what the Tigers did this weekend? We talk about most what we love the most. What are you talking about most? Is it Jesus? When our hearts love Jesus, when we experience the joy of His salvation, when we ourselves can't get enough of Jesus, we go out and tell other people about Jesus. But when other things come in and pull our joy away from Jesus, then we talk about those other things. What are you talking about? What do you talk about most? I think we need revival. I need revival. And I think this church needs revival. We need to have the joy of our salvation restored. So that we worship like no one else worships. We praise God like nobody else in this town. And we don't just confine that to these four walls. We burst out of these four walls into Bastrop, Morehouse Parish, Washington Parish, wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we play, and we tell people about Jesus. And there wouldn't be an empty pew in this place. If we would just have the joy of our salvation restored. Let's pray for revival. We need to pray for revival. Have you lost the joy of your salvation in Christ? Humble yourself before the Lord. Confess your sins. Repent. Turn to Christ and experience personal revival then you will worship and you will witness. When revival comes, God's people worship and witness. 
hear that when revival comes God's people worship and witness let us passionately pursue revival this week passionately pursue revival in your own personal walk commit this this week to examine your own life humble yourself before the Lord confess your sins before him Turn away from those sins and turn to Christ. Yes, as Christians, we've got to take up our cross daily. We've got to get up every day and follow Jesus. Seek revival so that we might worship and witness together. Let us passionately pursue revival. Let our prayer be, Lord God, will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Now for some, there's some here, I'm sure there's some here and they're watching online. You don't need revival, you need regeneration. You don't know the joy of salvation because you've never been saved. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And I want to speak for you, to you for just a moment. I want to let you know that Though you might be living in the things of this world, you might be pursuing joy and so many other things. And all the joys of this world will ultimately let you down. Riches will never last. Houses will never last. Jobs never last. None of these things will last. But one thing will. One person will. And that's Jesus Christ. Quit seeking joy in the things of this world and turn to Jesus. Christ came to this world. He lived and died for you to pay the penalty of your sin in your place. And three days later, he was resurrected again, making, giving you the assurance that you can have eternal life in him. And Scripture says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus and Lord is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved turn to Jesus today humble yourself before the Lord confess your sin turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus and he'll save you experience the joy of salvation for the first time by surrendering your life to Christ Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord God, as your church, we just confess. In so many ways, Lord, we have lost the joy of our salvation. And it's not because, Lord, you've gone anywhere. It's not because your glory has changed from one degree to another. Lord, we confess it's because we have allowed other things to draw our eyes off of you. Just like the Israelites, Lord, we have allowed things to come into our lives that, are, that have drawn us away. Lord, we need to humble ourselves. 
We need to come before you. and We need to turn away from all of those things, all of those distractions, and we need to focus again afresh on you and devote ourselves completely to you. Lord, let us feel that today. Let us feel that. And let us seek your face. Oh, Lord, restore to us the joy of your salvation. And Lord, there's some who've never trusted in Jesus. They don't know the joy of your salvation because they don't know Jesus. Oh, Lord, I pray today, turn their hearts to see Christ. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.